if we treat love like a limited resource, how miserable and lonely and untrue. Hello and welcome to Fuck Yeah, the podcast where we say fuck yeah to inclusive love languages. I am one of your hosts, Sarah Tomchesson, and I am joined by my vivacious co-host, Robin Jennings. You are alive. You have survived COVID. Yes. Yes. I feel like I've had a run of, you know, things because some of the, the interviews we've done, I've had a cold. And that uh-huh. was it's true. a while ago. So I don't want people to think that I'm like one after another getting like super sick. <laughs> but I did just come out of the COVID hole. We finally got it. I hadn't had it. Um, and, you know, it's fine. It's not great. It, but it, we're all fine. But I do. I'm a little rough again around the yeah. edges. But for me, I enjoy the way my voice sounds when I'm a little gravelly. Yeah, I, I, I love the gravel on you. I love the raspiness. Uh, I feel like probably everyone in the world is getting sick right now. This is just, there's RSV, which yes. we have had. Ruby definitely got it. Uh, th- we had a stomach bug that hit us. Uh, so we've had everything except for, co- like, knock on, I'm knocking on everything right now. We have not. You had still COVID. never had it. I haven't had it. Yeah. But this is also the most um, back to quote unquote normal that we've been. We were, we stayed pretty locked down, really masked. Ruby still wears a mask at school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My kids do too by their own choice. Yeah. No, that's how Ruby is too. She told me recently as it's starting to get cold, she's like, you know, the thing that's cool about masks and like what? She's like, it's like my own face heater. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's true. I've thought that many times where I'm like, no, masks aren't such a bad thing if you're in a cold place. It's been kind of cold in LA for LA standards. Feels like the dead of winter right now. Yeah, we had flooding last week. Aside from surviving COVID, what's giving you a fuck yeah right now, Robin? Well, I mean, it is always nice to start feeling healthy again. Like you notice how, what a big difference being healthy is. It feels great. But... I would say my big fuck yeah right now is I had a big revelation in therapy. Ooh, do tell. (laughs) Yes, with food, Sarah. You know, I have a big problem with food um, around eating it or enjoying it or desiring it. I don't do those things. Like you would prefer to just plug in and charge, right? Yes. Yes, take a pill, do anything so I don't have to worry about it. But I had a revelation in therapy that I were talking a lot about how I was parented and how that defines my way of treating myself now and defines my values Mm -hmm. and for myself, how I value myself. And I think that as a kid, Um, With this latchkey situation, I really wasn't ever shown love through food. And probably the opposite happened. I was probably devalued through food. 
Oh, say more about that. So like I, for example, I don't have any memory of ever having breakfast at home. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So it's like I have, I realize that I have been devaluing myself by not feeding myself. I've been defining my self-worth, but then at the same time, Sarah, and this is how it always folds in on itself, I have increased my perceived value through thinness. I get reinforcement of that I'm doing good by devaluing myself at a core basic animal level. Okay. So it's so... It's so many levels. The way that it turns into a fuck, yeah. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm going to bring it around. I'm always down for identifying the root of something. I mean, it is really shitty, but then at least you can do something about it. It's such a revelation. I'm I'm on this ride with you. (laughs) Yes, and so that is the fuck yeah part of this is the idea of reparenting myself. She's like, look, you need to feed your little girl, who's me, as well as you feed your little boys. So when you're feed, when you're thinking about who needs to be fed, include your your little daughter, who's me. Oh, so in that, I'm I have tingles right now because it's like it makes me feel like. Um, so now I'm viewing feeding myself as valuing myself and really as like self-care, which oh my gosh. literally is, Sarah. And I did uh, not know this. I did not wow. know this. I thought this was a way. Me for, for being hungry is a way to tell myself that I'm worth less. Okay. So she gave me the scale of how you can think about food she used to work with, eating disorder um, patients. And, and she was saying that, you know, she gave me the scale of hunger, one through seven, and where I should be lying, you know, how I should be feeling. And she was like, you can reconnect with your feelings around food and hunger and desire for food and things like that. And so I've been trying to do that. I've been feeding myself at least as well as I feed my kids. Which I'm telling you, that's how little food I eat. I eat less than my children probably do when they're six and eight. And I don't think of it as a problem because everybody, not everybody, of course, but like society completely reinforces it. Anyway, I'm feeding myself now and I've come to the realization that I am hungry almost all the time. Oh, Robin. And I have been feeding. I went to the grocery store and I bought food that I thought I would like to eat. which makes me like I'm teary-eyed talking about it because it's I haven't allowed myself to do that Sarah you know and so now I have things in the fridge that I desire to eat and then I'm allowing myself to eat and it is a revelation I I can feel how starved I've been and then I've done it to myself you know so I am I'm getting chills It's been a week since I've started doing this, and I can feel my body getting firmer Mm. because I'm filling in a little bit, and I just feel really into it. Like I was in the shower this morning and just feeling my belly, like being a little bit firm with fullness, a little bit, you know, poochy, and enjoying it and just being like, this is like mine. And I'm going to treat it well, even if it looks different than it does now, you know? 
I'm not going to be scared of not being thin. Anyway, it's a huge thing. Yeah. That's why I'm like, we got to start a therapy corner segment because it's like hitting hard in therapy right now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, this makes me think that I would love to do an episode maybe next week focused on this topic, actually, because our relationship to food, I think, Mm. is completely opposite. And I have a lot of my own challenges and like shame around feeding myself or when like right now, like I'm filling out a little bit after having really gotten very fit for a period of time and all of the baggage that comes along with that because Mm. of my family's relationship to food. Right. Uh, It's just so fraught. And yet also like food is very much a love language for me. Like I, I love feeding my loved ones. I love making myself a really nice meal. I don't do it very often, but I will do it for myself as well. Um, I will splurge and spend a lot of money on food. So like you and I are totally different when it comes to this. Yes, I I think that would be an excellent episode. I mean, even with like we were discussing what to do for Thanksgiving. I mean, not that Thanksgiving's only about food, but it's the foodiest time of year. Yeah, it's a time of the harvest. Like, yeah, let's do it. Okay, so for Thanksgiving, let's uh, look into some traditions around, you know, before it got the colonial holiday was yes. created let's let's like really get into kind of the earth-based religions uh and how they used the time of the harvest and then let's really dive in to our relationship to food because this is really There's... interesting to me and I'm so happy that you are that your therapist has helped you tap into this yes it, it's a revelation and maybe we could do a little uh, favorite thing to eat at the holidays. I'm sure yeah. you have a good recipe. Oh my gosh. So many. <laughs> How will you pick just one? How will I Maybe, pick you know what one? would be nice? Can you, let's set up where you're going to um, impart to me a way that I can love myself and my family, simple way, something that I could make and spread the love through food. Yes. Okay. I would okay. love that. Something yeah. that I can handle. I can operate an yeah. oven. You can. Okay. Wow. That was. We um, already got so intense so fast. I know. Like we're really working this intensity of <laughs> emotional sensitivity. I think it's the time of year though too, right? Like we're in Scorpio season. It's the days are dark. I mean, gosh, it gets dark so early now, which is really yeah. nice. But this is where we kind of dive into. Uh, these parts of ourselves where we ease a little bit on the social stuff, kind of go inward, yeah. hibernate. So I'm in. I'm into the journey that we're on. We'll get light again, y'all. We promise. Actually, I think today's episode, our guest is Anne Hodder Ship, the author of the Modern Love Languages book, uh, Speaking from the Heart: Eighteen Modern Love Languages. And while Anne is certainly a person of substance and can get really deep, so it'll be interesting to see where the conversation goes. uh, The topic I'm so excited about because I have loved the love languages as a tool. And when Anne's book came out and learning about just how 
terrible the author of the original love languages is and how super Christian he is and doesn't recognize not even not doesn't recognize gay couples. He doesn't mm. have any value in he doesn't value couples that are not married. No so way. I'm so excited about what she's done with the love languages. Um, Anne is also the founder and lead educator of Etsy. Everyone deserves sex ed, sex ed education certification program. Uh, okay. It's a really good program. I'm the kink informed facilitator for that program. Um, yeah. And Anne is also, if you do not follow Anne on social media, I think it's just the Anne Hodder, uh, you're missing out because. Anne's reels are something else. They are so good. So I'm really excited to get into conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, let's do it. Learning more about these love languages. Hello, Anne. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, we just wanted to start you off with a little warm up of some rapid fire questions to get this going. Cool. So I was wondering, what's the last podcast you listened to? Oh, Heavyweight. I love that podcast. Oh, say more. Let's see. Jonathan Goldstein, super dry, super funny person, will be contacted by somebody who needs to needs help with something. So incredible. It's very emotional and human, but not in a super depressing way. And it's almost like uncovering a mystery that sometimes that starts micro and then like grows into something macro so it's amazing and I love it yeah love that sounds amazing it sounds like human connection is absolutely one of the... there was a short episode where a kid his mom had recently died he was on like the basketball team or something or had to go to gym class and the gym teacher at the time just walked over to this kid gave him a huge bear hug and then later that year, like moved to another school and like started teaching somewhere else. So this kid never saw that coach ever again. But that hug changed his life. And mm. it was because of that hug that he, among other things, started to feel comfortable saying, I love you and giving big hugs to other men. Oh. So he called the heavyweight people saying, I want to find this coach. I want to just tell him. And they find the coach. They get the coach on the phone with the person who's, of course, now an adult. They have this little exchange where the coach was like, of course I remember you. Yes, of course. I had just Aww. lost my mom and I knew that you had lost yours. So I just wordlessly hugged you. And um, mm. so then the guy tells the coach how it changed his life. And then the coach was like, yes, that's absolutely how I feel about other men and showing love and hugs. And like, they just super bonded, even though you know, 10, 20 year difference on this like little tiny game changing, life changing experience that took like four seconds. And it was wow. just so lovely to to hear them talk about it after the fact, because then both people got to share their experience with it and how it impacted them. And it's so interesting because it, it's so an, anti, antithetical to what our um, culture does of just kind of not talking about these things, just letting them reside in your own mind, um, but bringing them out into the forefront like that and really discuss and getting into the nitty gritty of it. All about the details, right? I love that. Totally. And the fact wow. that there's two different, at least, lenses happening. So, like, two different, very, two very different experiences happening at the same yeah. time. And you never know if yours actually was representative and anything yes. similar to what the other people's experiences were. And the only way to right. know that is to, like, say something. Ugh. 
say so. I love that. I love that so much. Here's another one. Um, what um is the last picture on your phone? Let's see. It's probably cat related. I was hoping. <laughs> I want to see that cat. Anne is a cat lover. Very true. But it is a picture of Beatrice on the couch. Aww. I wish we could, you know, show everybody my phone, but it's a very cute one. Little tiny compact cat, like loaf shape on a giant empty, you know, couch. So it's like little tiny nugget on a huge blue surface. The cat loaf. Very cute. Who was your first celebrity crush? Um, that I can remember, Boy George. Oh. Ooh. Yeah, specifically the it. You Wanna Hurt Me music video. I was like, who is that? Yes. And I love nobody ever told me, like, that doesn't make sense. You're not supposed to think that that's hot or attractive. Um, so I was said, like, because of the lack of any engagement with me, I just got permission by default. And like, that was, yeah, that was, um, that was a big crush of me, of mine when I was little. I love that. I have a specific rem- memory. Um, I was very young when Boy George was on MTV. I remember we had an 80s uh, Texas teenage babysitter um, mm-hmm. that would blow like Aquanet firebombs to impress us. <laughs> like that's the kind of person. And she would invite the guys over and be on the phone all the time. Anyway, she was great. She had the really tall hair and she would always play MTV. And that was the first time that I saw Boy George. And I remember distinctly thinking, wait, you can do that? Mm-hmm. You can you can be a guy and wear makeup? Yeah. And it was my first, I think it's the first identifiable um, uh, recognition of non-binary behavior. I love that first crush for you, Anne. That makes me so happy. Isn't that great? And it makes so much sense when I think about it now, like millions of years later, where that to me, there was no representation of anything other than like, I like that and want to look at that all the time. And now when I realize like, oh, oh, yeah, there's actually a lot of like super femmy boy gender fuckery stuff in my childhood that um, never registered as meaningful beyond. I like that. That's fun. Let's move on to the next thing that I like and is fun. So it's kind of, I feel very validated by these weird childhood experiences I didn't remember yes. until like two years ago. And do you feel like that informs your your choices um, for relationships now? I think so. In part, like I don't have a ton of choice outside of the one I've chosen monogamously with my lovely uh, spouse, Nathaniel. But what it has done is like anytime I feel any kind of like imposter syndrome around um, Mm. not like feeling queer enough or like my the fact that I have this like super hetero looking relationship somehow like diminishes or cancels out how I really feel. I get I have all of the race from my childhood where I'm like oh that makes sense too there's some evidence there's some evidence that I get to put in my little imposter syndrome dossier as like evidence to counter whatever bullshit is in my mind I love <laughs> that you have queer imposter syndrome because I do the same oh yeah the worst I feel like the more people talk about it everyone is like me too me too me too and it's like that's the new thing yeah and it's really just a question of am I valid is this valid totally do I count yeah. yes I validate you I hear you. you I see you um, what was your first mode of masturbation? Oh, my um, l- my left pointer finger. It's <laughs> very specific. I know. I was very, I my right finger, I just like, even if I try it now, uh, yeah, my right finger like doesn't have the um, stamina. It gets tired. And it was just like flickering side, like up and down 
on or side to side to the like clitoris and I wasn't like I'm gonna masturbate now it was like this isn't this feels good let's do it more and it was just like yeah flicking flicking around how old I wish I could remember for for sure but I was maybe I want to say seven or eight and I had an accidental orgasm I didn't know what it was but I was like what is this and it was so overwhelming that I had to stop everything and then it and then it went away and I was like wait, wait, wait. come back come back and I kept trying to make it happen again and like couldn't uh, but yeah, that was my like accidental solo sexual masturbatory experience at seven or eight. Yeah. Wow. Good for you. Tracks. I feel like that's when right. most people are starting to explore their bodies in a really pleasurable way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I missed out on like 10 years of sexual activity with myself <laughs> robin was a late bloomer when i, I was like 15 or 13 or some bullshit oh that's cute though she's, she's not about it in retrospect <laughs> i meant you know, all those years i, I could have been experiencing pleasure <laughs> and i feel like a lot of people know you now from your love languages book speaking from the heart 18 modern love languages but mm-hmm. you have had so many lives before you wrote this book mm-hmm. and I believe you started in journalism am I right about that yeah yeah I totally print journalism specifically just write like always writing that was like my my thing yeah do you think that that's influenced like how you approach sex education and all of the work that you do now? For sure. I use a lot of the skills that I had to learn in journalism school around research, critical thinking, and even in some ways, the inverted pyramid, which is like such an old school journalism term at this point, where it's like all of the important shit is in the lead paragraph, that first paragraph. And then the rest Mm. kind of trickles down to the point where by the end of the article, that's the random shit that like if the person doesn't finish the article, no big deal because they read the, maybe the first paragraph and maybe the second. And that's where all the key good stuff is. And I notice when I'm trying to explain stuff, I love to explain things visually and with detail. And like, you know, some would call me long winded, including myself when I'm feeling insecure. But like, I try to start like I'm building a house, like let's dig the foundation and put that floor in so you got something to stand on. And then as we go with like the ex- explanation, whether you are present for it or not, no biggie, because you at least have something to stand on. But if you stick mm-hmm. around, then we get some walls, some framing, right? And like all the other stuff that ends up making like a container to kind of feel at home in or like a place to be. And so that was kind of what like writing an article would sometimes be like, uh, though it wasn't always fun. You didn't have a lot of like leeway to be creative and colorful when you were um writing articles because of just the media world but when you can do it verbally and you call the shots and it's not just limited to a piece of paper because you only have a certain page count or word count now it's like with words and diagrams or pictures or whatever you can really like paint a full picture without feeling as um, limited or restricted to words and word counts and editors who get to decide what ultimately it ends up looking like or reading like. Yeah, I like that a lot as a a teaching tool. I think that's really interesting, especially for folks who are kind of new to educating or presenting sex education. That idea, I, I think 
also just how our attention spans have changed mm-hmm. through the digital age. Like what an effective way to think about delivering important information. Yeah. And I feel like I can see you doing that in your reels as well. Mm-hmm. And it's so important on a medium like TikTok where, I mean, I've experienced it as a viewer of TikTok where you're like, it, look, you got to get to the point. Draw me in with a big idea. I'm swiping. And then so you get drawn in and then you can stay for the details if you want the details. And a lot of um, books around relationships and psychology and things like that, it's a similar thing where it's like a lot of people aren't going to read the whole book, but you can get your message across. And then for the people that really want all of the details, they can stay for it. Which interestingly, now that I think about it, the clinical procedural model that like was taught to me in my one of my first big trainings around like the process of assisting a client, the shape of the plicit model is also an upside down triangle now that I think about it. So that's Ooh. same type of, you know, methodology or mindset. Yeah. I mean, I think also and in your education and your work, all the work that you do, like you very lovingly pull the rug out from under mm. people. Where it's like, I'm going to hold your hand through this process of, you know, pulling the veil back. And at the end, you're going to kind of question everything that you've been taught or know about (laughs) sexuality, relationships, and the love languages. You did that for me with love languages because this is actually a tool that I have loved. Oh, cool. Because I learned a lot about myself in reading about the love languages, you know, years ago and feel like it's always been something that's been really helpful for me as a connection point with a partner. And I knew nothing about kind of the history and the root of the methodology until mm-hmm. you wrote your book. Until I ruined everything. Until you but you ruined it in like the best possible way because you ruined it. And then you said, but look, here is this other way to look at it. So I'm just I'm really curious how you came to the love languages. And like, can you break down for us why you felt it was important to update them and expand on them? Totally. I think I came across them like most of us do, like not in a professional context. Someone mentioned them. It might have even been when I was first dating Nathaniel. Um, As like an idea or a concept of thinking, like, what do you potentially need so that you could then maybe communicate it to a partner and like vice versa? And so similar to you, Sarah, I was like, this is cool. Yeah, I'll totally work with that. I also even work with this dude's apology languages, which is differently problematic, but I also love it as an idea. And um, and then when I started to try to use it in like a professional setting, when I was doing groups in treatment centers with recently sober adults, I would bring some of the tools in. And as I would read read it, you know, and kind of get more familiar so I could talk about it. And then I would like bring the quiz in for my clients. I started to actually witness it being demonstrated by the regular people of the world. And I was like, oh, no, like, mm-hmm. what do you mean? how is what like the misunderstandings or the misinterpretations of things so to be honest i don't know if it's even fair to call it a misinterpretation i think it's just an interpretation because i started to just see how the um consequence of such a very broad generalization of love that's really does center 
heterosexual marriage or blood relation as like the two key resources for love, I was like, oh, this actually is like kind of creating some fuckery that now I have to try to like manage and undo in my workshops or in my groups. And that's not good because that why would anyone then trust me with this information because I'm like giving it and then I'm kind of undoing it and like redoing it in real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did. So that's what I would end up doing. I would just revamp it in real time. I started to have sort of like a general, here's the caveat, the thing to think about before we do this quiz. Here are some other ways to think about what love languages are. And here are some potential like judgments or things that might come up for you with some of the love languages that you look at. So you're all prepared and including like this isn't a science. It's just a concept that can feel really helpful. Um, and if that would work and, you know, the, the bonus was just like accidentally over five or six years, I had a completely different, like revamped way of working with the love languages just on hand, including activities and ways to talk about stuff. And that was before I knew about the snod nature of the actual gentleman who wrote the book and the four million iterations of it since. So it was already problematic before I was realizing how fucking problematic it was. Then I'm very just uncovered, like totally accidentally, potentially online from maybe some fellow sex educators because it wasn't it's still not common knowledge, but it was definitely not common knowledge then where we learned that the person who created this um, this book and the five love languages is a homophobe. And actually a Christian minister who's just genuinely or generally cosplaying as a marriage counselor and actually isn't a marriage counselor, no counseling degree, no degree at all beyond adult education. And that uh, he was just a Christian minister who couples would come to with their issues. And so he's like, I'm a marriage counselor now. And so he would market his shit as a marriage counselor type tool. How nice it must be to have male entitlement. (laughs) I can do this. I have no credentials. I have no experience in this, but it's fine. It's everyone will be fine. If I say so, it's true. Mm -hmm. And this was in the early 90s. So it's like extra bad and extra easy for, you know, men to pretend that they are important and matter more than they actually do. So he just said something about his homophobia and about his, you know, how he would instruct a parent of a gay kid to figure out how to still love their gay kid. And uh, he wasn't he wasn't like hiding it. It was just somewhere on a part of the Internet that like most of us probably wouldn't venture to. And uh, I saw that and I was just like, oh, my God, what the hell? And just kept on kind of like looking at where what's this dude all about and just kind of seeing more and more like, okay, so he is a homophobe. He's a total fake and fraud with a massive book deal and millions and millions of dollars. and. He actually acknowledged this in the New York Times like maybe two months ago, three months ago. He wasn't actually setting out to be like, I have a tool to help everyone. He, in his own marriage, had an experience where like when he would help, when he would do the dishes sometimes, oh boy, his wife was like less pissed at him. <laughs> he was like, oh, there must be something here. Oh, well, and so that's where like his invention of acts of service must be a show of love because they the women folk naturally are indentured servants because God says so slash a man said God said so and put it on paper. 
So if I assist with that servitude, that's helping and helping is love. And it's working in my relationship. So what else could help? And so he just creates all these very general, random, engendered things like receiving gifts and physical touch, right? Um, and yeah, created the original five. So like they're all influenced and impacted by gender role bullshit, heterosexuality, boring, marriage as the ultimate thing. And that like love really only exists romantically in a marriage or between parent and child. Because when you're, you know, blood related, you have to love each other. You must. And here are the ways to try to show that you love. If you go back to them and look at them through this lens, like the way is that the misogyny is baked in and the Christian values are baked in. And not that that, you know, Christian values can be great for some couples, but they are also a, a tool of oppression sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. uh, so when you start looking at things through this critical lens, which is the thing that I think is kind of the magic that you bring to your work is you've always got these like supercharged critical lens glasses on and can really cut through the bullshit. I love that I so much. That's so much about you. So much. I love how you hey. um had you found something that resonated, but then you continued to have a critical eye to it, and and yeah. you didn't stop digging. You know, you're like yeah. the criticality yeah. led you down a path that then you end up improving on. Um, which I'm so excited <laughs> to hear about what your modern love languages are because um. I mean, partly what you're talking about, I, what's resonating with me is that his whole um, system of love languages really come out of this system that is so oppressive that we're all trying to shed. And it's really there to reinforce that capitalist, patriarchal, white supremacist, nuclear family thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you only have two kinds of love. There's with your kids and there's with your partner, the end, you know. And no that's all of, you need. Right. No sense of community. Such a lie. Yes. And there are only five ways to do it, you know? Yeah. And I've always felt like none of those worked for, I've not heard any of the five that I'm like, I'm like, I guess, I don't know. Eh, Mm -hmm. I guess I'm a combination. I don't know. That's common. That was one of the other things that was an issue. Even if none of this other bullshit was actually real and present, one of the things I would also see from people is just like, I don't know if I actually see myself in any of the five. So what does that mean about me? Right. Yeah. Right. Like they thought it was there's something wrong with them. Yeah. And where do I belong if I don't have a love language label to say I am this, which became the new thing. Like I, I my new identity is acts of service. Right. Like, I am receiving gifts. What are you? As though like it's a mm-hmm. tattoo and you carry it with you forever mm-hmm. um, with no fluidity or flexibility. Um, so, yeah, people just felt really erased and left out. and of course, didn't realize that actually, like, they're not the problem. Right. <laughs> it's always the labelers. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like the 18 modern love languages does a few things and fluidity is such a great word for it. Mm. This like permission to change mm. and not to be wed to one thing. So you bring fluidity to the modality you bring a lot of inclusivity and you this really expansive approach so I'm just curious like what do you how do you think that people 
I mean, what are you hearing? Like, how are people using this new approach to relate better to their loved ones and this expanded definition of their loved ones, too? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I probably hear the most is just the idea of uh, taking love out of a an exclusively romantic container mm. and being able to think about it as something that exists almost everywhere and that you are potentially surrounded by things that you love or could help you feel loved, but you just don't necessarily know it or it doesn't register because you've always been told that doesn't count yes. or it's not the same because there's like a love hierarchy. If it comes from a loved one who you might marry one day, that's the best and most important. If it's from your best friend, that's good too. Yeah. But if you find someone to marry soon, ditch the best friend. Right. Focus on that person you might marry. And then also bringing in the fact that you can feel loved or feel loved toward non-human things. Yes. Like your pets, mm -hmm. like a movie or a sound Ugh. or an inanimate object, like that pair of shoes that you saved up for for four years and now you fucking have them now and you wear them all day in your apartment. Yeah. Because like fucking love them and they make you potentially feel even more love toward yourself while you're wearing them, you know? And just really seeing like it can just be... It, uh, all over the place and you're just kind of taking the little compartments out out of there so that everything just exists everywhere wherever it falls and that there's no like ladder or hierarchy or pyramid so to speak to like put them all in i love that so well, much. and where your attention goes is where energy flows right so if we're constantly putting all of our attention on one singular relationship or our nuclear family as our primary, most important source of love. And there is that inherent nature of conflict within any relationship. Then you become isolated and siloed when you realize that your life, your love relationships, your intimate connections are not as rich as you want them to be. Yeah. And how limiting, limiting that is. Of, mm -hmm. um, of only, get, you know, receiving love from those spaces. It only recently occurred to me through massive amounts of therapy that I've been obsessed with the romantic relationship as being the biggest primary goal. And mm -hmm. it's just so much pressure on myself mm -hmm. and the other person and mm -hmm. so unrealistic and limiting. I, I yep. realize I've been so limited because it, I love the idea of being into a sound. Like, I think I mm. do have love relationships with certain sounds. And mm -hmm. to acknowledge that is so heartwarming and such a relief to have so many different avenues of, of love in your life. I love that so much. Yeah. You know, the, you used a, a few different words that really I use a lot when I think about this or talk about it. The limiting mm -hmm. idea of like, if we, treat love like a limited resource mm. how miserable and lonely mm -hmm. and untrue the idea of relief mm -hmm. but just like the idea of it like even whether or not you fully can wrap your head around it just to hear like the permission mm. that like oh no love can be way more than just that it's almost like huh, you know because yeah. the pressure is off and 
you don't have the pressure that you put on yourself to like, I need to find that well. I need to find the well I can dunk into every time I need love. And until I find that well, I'm just going to be thirsty, yes. even though there's like a beach over there and here's a pond and like there's two bottles of water on the ground. Right. But they don't count they don't, because not real water. You no, know, it's not that well. And um, it's just, yeah, it can really feel game changing. And just for like context, in case someone's listening and they're like, what the fuck about the sound? I don't get it. I understand. But here is where to think about it. The way to go with the, in, for me, with the lo modern love languages to start is just what does love feel like mm. to you? Like love is subjective, you know? So what is, what are the emotions you associate with love and maybe physical sensations if you can feel them? And then what are the things in your life that also bring those feelings or physical sensations in? Mm. Those may also be love resources that just feel maybe unconventional or even weird. And for me, there are some like, it can be a tingle. It feels like a, um, a wave of, of tingle um, around like over my body that I have when I hear certain songs. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the bridge of the song, interestingly, but like always, even when I was a kid, it would be like the same thing, same song on repeat. I would demagnetize my cassette tapes from just playing the one song over mm -hmm. and over. <laughs> can you name one, one of the one songs? Oh my God, that's such a good question. Fine. Fine young cannibals. She drives uh, me crazy. Yeah. Ah, I love it. It's, I mean, think of it like a sound bath, but not like the, the woo woo type of sound bath. Like you are going to be, if you've experienced sound and like proprioception like that, it can actually feel like you're, you're like swimming in the yes. sound, you know, like you're actually underwater, but instead of the water, it's the yes. sound that feels so nice to you. And for some people, you know, the ASMR responses people have, like the tingles where they love hearing the tapping sounds and the, you know, um, the scritching and the brushing noises, the things that people describe experiencing when they watch ASMR or listen to ASMR are really similar to, for me personally, are really similar to the sensations I associate with feeling really loved, really safe, really okay, really allowed to just be. And it's interesting how. I don't think that all these things are their own individual things where I would say, nope, ASMR is actually love now. It's more like the Venn diagram overlapping right. of maybe it could also be love feelings for some people because that's what they associate. But then for others, like that isn't what it feels like to feel love because really love for them feels like I feel respected, you know, or something else that a, maybe a sound can't give them, but other things could. Well, but I think that this gets at what is so great about the modern love languages is it really is about sourcing from wherever is right or feels good for you so that you have this like cushion of love that surrounds you. And as you were talking about the sound, I don't have that relationship really probably to any sounds. I mean, that's not true. Like the sound of um, my child's laughter, my Andrea's laughter, like those are sounds that fill me, but I associate them with those people. But during COVID, there was just so much um, really good information that I feel like was becoming available around somatic practices. And it was the first time that someone had shared with me that as an adult, that they had a stuffy. Mm -hmm. And I felt some I I like definitely you know those feelings where you're like am I judging this mm. and you kind of know that you've hit on something right uh, where you know you maybe should dig a little deeper 
And I was like, I don't, I don't think I could give myself permission to have a stuffy. You know, I don't, I don't know how Sarah I feel about that, stuffy. but I was, I was really drawn to it. And so I, um, have found that now I, I have issues, um, I have issues, y'all. <laughs> no, I have I have some struggles with uh, not living and sleeping with Andrea. Like once I have had like her cuddles, like I want them all the time. So like I sleep holding a pillow mm. now, mm-hmm. and I have to tell you, like it helps to soothe those feelings of like loss or loneliness or whatever the stuff is that comes up for me that makes distance difficult just to have that pillow and it is self-soothing. And so I don't know that I would say I am in love with my pillow or that my pillow gives me love, but it is a tool for me to love myself. Oh, Sarah, I love that. I mean, it's very sweet and a great example of like, you know, the idea of being in love with, I just even want to highlight that that's not what the love languages, the modern love languages are about, right? Just this, this thing gives me a feeling that I associate with love mm. and that is great. And I'm so glad that I know that. And like, you can even just leave it at that. And I love even just redirecting it where it's like, I don't know if I want to maybe associate this with giving me love, but when I feel it around my arms and I don't, and I feel something against me. So it's not just like, open space on either side of me in the bed that makes me feel secure maybe and like secure could be among the feelings that you associate with love in part because you probably feel pretty secure when Andrea is physically around so that's totally like that counts too yeah and I I do feel like the book is dealing with this self-love piece too like Mm -hmm. that ultimately like you know in the way that when I first read the love languages I was like oh great now I know how to like it felt very um transactional like I know how to tell someone to love me and I know how to now ask somebody how do you need to be loved like give me my actions that I can take and I feel like the modern love languages when I interact with it it opens up kind of a deeper conversation Mm -hmm. around all these things that we're talking about and including like, how can I be more loving to myself so Mm -hmm. that I feel loved independent of like who I'm interacting with Mm -hmm. and, and it opens up the well of more access to love. Yeah. I think a big part of that is thinking, you know, we also have a big understandable dependency in many ways, to external circumstances or ex- external sources of some of these feelings. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like external validation, fuck yeah, go for it. I also at least want to help build an additional muscle from for when those external sources aren't available. Yeah. That you are SOL and starving right. until mm-hmm. they're available again. And it's just about like doing a bit of a reframe on some of the not just the love, the modern love languages themselves, but like the actual maybe actions associated with some of them. So if like uh, engaged experiences to you would be like seeing the same movie with your friend or a significant other so that you can talk about it together later, what's an experience that feels engaged for you that is the equivalent of being able to share it with someone else? But it's something that it really is like just for you and you're present the whole time. Mm. You know, you're not like also scrolling Instagram at the same time and 
maybe it's a thing you've always been like, yeah, I should do that sometime. And you're just like, I'm going to fucking actually do the thing. I'll go on that hike or I'll go to that exhibit. I know no one else will want to go to. Or I'll go shopping for the stuffy. And I'm just going to make that my goal for the day. And my engaged experience is like finding the thing I can squish at night and like feel good about. What a lovely like thing to do for yourself that isn't super high stakes and not too much effort. All of that stuff to me can feel like intentional time and also engaged experiences and probably some other things that are on the 18, you know, modern language list. Um, and that all also super counts. Like you don't have to spend money or even leave the house necessarily. Specifically with the shower, I've been trying to do, I'm working like somatically in therapy somewhat and trying to re-engage with my body. And I lately mm -hmm. in the shower, I've been trying to see it as a sensual, sometimes sexual experience to experience like my body. I'm trying to re-experience my body outside of the um, male gaze uh, structure that I've always viewed it under that I only recently realized that I do. And it's very it's it's um, it's so nice. <laughs> To have like a sensual sexual experience yeah. with your own self and to actually and to visually enjoy your own body also without thinking about how it looks, but looking at how mm -hmm. it looks and then having like the idea I was reading pleasure activism and the, and I, the idea of sexualizing myself for my own pleasure was presented in that book. And I've been trying to wrap my brain around that one. Also, but a lot mm -hmm. of it has to do with permission, like with the stuffy and everything. I think there's partly a generational, like latchkey kid Gen X thing, at least that I have. And Sarah and I have talked about it before of you just need to suck it up, handle it on your own. You don't need certain things. You mm -hmm. and to give ourselves these like little pleasures and to. Recently, I've given myself permission to rewatch shows, even though I may have already rewatched them. But I enjoy it. And what I'm looking out, out for in that situation is to feel comforted and to feel relaxed and quiet. I don't need to watch. I find it unnerving to watch new shows because I'm like, well, what if they throw something at me that like triggers me or like whatever? And I'm like, I just want to watch my three shows that I love over and over and over again. Anyway. I love all the permission giving right now. I'm really feeling very permitted. And then if you've seen it before, you have the comfort of familiarity. You know that there won't be any surprises. So your nervous system isn't at all even the tiniest bit hypervigilant yeah. and waiting. It's like, I can chill because I know exactly what that person's going to say. And I know that nobody dies. <laughs> and like everyone, you know, is happy at the end. And that's like so such a great way to, you know, introduce this kind of a practice in that doesn't require a huge overhaul of anything you're just like what would it be like if I sat on the couch and instead of going to my watch list of things that I have been hoping to watch at some point and just go to a thing that I know I fucking love even though I've seen it before and it's not quote-unquote nourishing or whatever nutrient rich <laughs> for my brain and um what would it be like if I just enjoyed it for the sake solely of enjoyment yeah. with no other conditions associated easier said than done but i think you know pleasure for pleasure's sake is one of the key things that's really hard and potentially it is like overlaps with some of the modern love language concepts yeah. where you don't have, like there's no catch you don't have to put conditions on and it doesn't have to necessarily mean anything 
Yeah, it makes me think of how many rules we're living by all the time yeah. that are not our rules. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ugh. All right. I already feel freer. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to do a call out that one of the things I keep thinking about is our pleasure course and that we co-teach the pleasure attitudes, yeah. which is I don't know that I quite realized that it was a very similar application of this kind of expansive, inclusive model, like approach towards just your relationship Mm. with pleasure as the love languages is to your relationship with love. So uh, we got to make a book one day. (laughs) We'll add it to the list. I don't know if you've even seen it yet and like the listeners can't see it, but, you know, the show notes will have how to buy it. The workbook that helps you actually with exercises to do your own love language, modern love language work is now physically in my hand and isn't just a pretty PDF. <sighs> and I, I did this all by myself with some assistance from Salt and Sage Books in Colorado. If anyone wants some support. Good for you, Anne. It looks great. Yeah, I cannot wait. I, Thanks. I have the workbook digitally and I cannot wait to get the physical because that kind of stuff. I love listening to audiobooks, but when mm-hmm. it comes to doing a workbook and doing activities, I really like having something in my head. Totally. I did want to ask you a question related to relationships, okay. because I do think that that's how a lot of people come to, you know, like we're going to we're going to get we're going to get you to love yourselves more but a lot of people are coming to tools like the love languages through wanting to connect with a partner in a more meaningful intimate and connected way for me that was really revelatory your expansion on what i had always connected to from the original love languages was quality okay. time Then the differentiation that you do between engaged experiences, which you describe as for some, this might look like taking an adventurous vacation in the woods, while for others, engaged experiences look more like waiting to watch the new cat video until you're together and can get that dopamine hit at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then intentional time, you describe... I'm doing a really brief description, by the way, y'all. So you got to get the book to get all the details. But prioritizing uninterrupted time with those you love can play a major role in maintaining the connection and bond that drew you together in the first place. It communicates how much you value them, their time, and their energy. And I feel like there is a specificity, like you expand but then it also allows you the ability to be a bit more specific. Mm-hmm. And it sort of mirrors this concept of dialects, mm-hmm. which I have heard you equate to, you know, we don't need just five love languages. There's a lot of nuance that exists in how language, similarly to how ling- there's nuance in language. And I guess what would be like the first step that you think a couple can take to get acquainted with each other's love dialects? I don't think there's like one, I mean, obviously there's no one way and there isn't like a um, maybe chronological order, but I do think the first thing that pops into my mind is there are these um, little digital flashcards that I made that are just like little squares of each modern love language. 
And I made those when I first came out with the ebook because I knew I would need some kind of tool that somebody would want to use. I, I had someone who had DM'd me and was just like, I want to do this with my partner, but like, how do I do the book with my partner? And I was like, flashcards. So there's no like definition or explanation on the cards. It's just like a little icon that kind of, to me, visually represents the modern love language and then the modern love language at the top. And one of the thoughts that I have with those is just like, not necessarily rapid fire, but you know, person A goes through the 18 and, you know, one by one looks at the flashcard, sees what it is. Maybe it's accountability. And like immediately they say, like, what do I associate with that? And so then each partner has their own chance to do their own associations using those just flashcards one at a time. And that is kind of like, you know, word association ish. But I, I like that because you aren't influenced yet by any more specific things you might have seen in the ebook that you feel maybe count more. There's no idea in your mind of what is right or wrong because you don't even really fully know what each one could be because they also, there's so much overlap. So. And you're tapping into your intuition. I love that. Um, and then you have information, you know, each person ideally will have 18 examples that are unique to themselves that could represent those different love languages, you know, modern love languages, right? Um, regardless of whether some are more important to them than others. So you've got something to work with already and you don't necessarily have to do any big like deep dives. But then from there, if you're like, well, what, what do I do with this? Or what does this mean? Or, you know, did I, is my example for accountability right? Or, you know, some, some of our minds go there. Then like you could go to the ebook and see how that example might show up in more than one modern love language because it resonates with you in that way and so you can kind of expand upon that original little nugget that you started with and you can do it together it'll be an engaged experience <laughs> bringing <laughs> it back oh, I, yeah. I mean it's kind that. of it's a bit of a game in a way but it's kind of it's also an exercise okay. to flex your intuitive love muscle right sounds great yeah, just keep it super low stakes. Like no one has to know anything. You're actually both equally in the fucking dark together, which is also a teamwork situation, mm -hmm. right? And then you do the thing, like, I don't know what this, any of this is supposed to mean, but we're both on the same page about it. There's no hierarchy of understanding. And then from there, you can kind of continue on learning about it or thinking about it as much as you want. And the stakes get to stay low because it doesn't have to be it's a big, intensive, like, chore. Yeah. You know, it can be whatever you want it to be. I like that the stakes are low because, like, I'm, um, today is actually my 13th anniversary with my partner. And I'll tell you, after, like, this long and having kids and stuff, the stakes seem really high. And I think it's mm -hmm. making it more difficult to work through problems because you like I've never been in any kind of relationship this long and then to have so many consequences to how well your relationship is going as far as how other people mm -hmm. are affected by it it just becomes um like a heavy situation but I I would love to approach love without all the stakes you know yeah I mean I think that probably a lot of people listening are like, me too, Robin. And I also feel like, me too, Robin. We don't have kids, but I've been in this relationship for almost eight mm -hmm. years. And 
yeah, when there are certain conflicts that happen, it feels very high stakes. Like, is it still happening now, eight years in? Or like, like you put a lot of this meaning that's actually completely unhelpful and relatively up by yourself onto these situations that raise the stakes in ways that um, helps, you know, squirt more lighter fluid on the yeah. flames. And mm-hmm. and so like the way that it, I, I'm not saying that any of that, like it shouldn't be high stakes. It's as high, whatever it feels like, great. The modern love language ebook or the workbook, my goal is not to have that be more lighter fluid. Right. Like, here's the solution. Let's bring it in. It has to work. It has to work because it's not really designed like that. It's more like, what is something that can feel maybe 10% fun, but isn't high stakes? Like, you have to go to therapy to figure it out. And it's just an activity that you can do. And maybe you do a worksheet together and like, that's, you know, a 20 minute engaged experience that you're attempting or an intentional time thing where you're like, from five to 5.30, phone's gone. We're both here. This is the time we do this exercise, whatever it is. And then you do it. And then you don't necessarily have to do anything with it after. Just keep the stakes low. You do the thing. You did the thing you committed to. Now, you know, get your kid in the bathtub and figure out how to, how to fall asleep that night. And maybe in the future, once you've done enough of it or you've gotten through maybe the whole workbook, then you have information to put together and to gather and like to meet each other with. And you can look at that information not with any kind of like judgmental eye or high stakes. You have to figure this out using all of our tools. It's more just like, let's explore. Like, what did you put here? What did I put here? And trying to kind of like maintain an agreement from the start that if and when I start to feel activated mm-hmm. or judgmental or judged or whatever else, all we have to do is say it, that this is what's happening. And the other person just gets to say, thanks for letting me know. That's it. Nobody has to, it doesn't have to become another conflict. And just by airing out what's going on with you, I think takes, reduces the pressure that's starting to build right. again. And you might be able to then get back into it. And if you can't, great activity you know that thing is done for now and you convene you agree to convene at a future you know time and date to continue just exploring the information that you now have and um without the problem solving part right the problem solving part the problem solving part's a real problem sometimes (laughs) i'm like stop sometimes there is no solution yes and sometimes it's not actually a problem right it's a problem because it doesn't work or with the expectations. Yeah. When you remove the, the expectations, it's not a problem. It's just a feeling or a thing or a desire it's or whatever. just a feeling. So it's just, yeah. Oh, I love that. That's really good. It's all perspective. It's looking at things in a different way and being like, maybe you're really tense about this because you don't like the feeling rather than there is actually a problem. Yeah. And also, I was going to say, like, even the, the presence of conflict doesn't mean problem. Right. Presence of conflict to me means presence of like passion and a lot of care. Many fucks. Many give. fucks given. Yeah. We have them. And so each other's fucks to give are now together in one place. And that can feel really intense because sometimes they, like, they don't necessarily match or they might feel like they're abrasive against each other. And that can feel like, oh, no, there's a problem because we're fighting again. When actually it's like the problem would be. If we didn't give a fuck at all mm. and everything was just hunky dory all the time, smiles, no issues, to me, that's like, oh, there's a problem here. Why do we not 
like where's the passion or the desire here? And I don't mean sexual passion. I just mean like the passion for things you really care about for yourself or your partner or your relationship or something else that you're maybe sharing together. And um, so even like reframing the idea of like what counts as a problem yeah, and who's it's a problem and is it the problem or is the perspective the issue mm. or the frame? And reframing conflict as a good, as good information about what you care yeah. about. I love that. So where can people find the modern love languages and the workbook and you and all of the wonderful things that you do, Anne? Yeah, the modern love languages.com. That's where like that's the hub for the workbook. The workbook is also available digitally. So I've made it fillable. You don't have to like buy a workbook and have it shipped to you, but you can also do that. Um, and also just a heads up, you know, the ebook is not a replacement. It's not like a long tome. You know, some people I think are, we're hoping for like a 200, 300 page thing they could deep dive into. And I totally get that. But like we were talking about before, attention spans, mm. it is something that's also designed to help you get the information and be able to think about it without having to make a giant commitment. Mm -hmm. So that's not the thing people are looking for that could feel disappointing. But anyway, get all that from the modernlovelanguages.com and my personal website with like, you know, um, scheduling links and the courses and that, you know, that um, Sarah and I do together are at uh, annhottership.com. And they can find me at the Ann Hodder on Instagram and now on TikTok. Oh, thank you for spending this time with us. We are definitely going to have you back to talk about so many other things. And uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you, Anne. It's been wonderful for me also. I loved talking to Anne. I'm really excited to do the workbook. I'm so fascinated by 18 love languages and... The idea of having permission for other kinds of love and really looking inward to find where your love resonates. Yeah, I was actually thinking that we could go through her suggestion. I was thinking maybe let's go through what the 18 love languages are. Like I'll just read them off. Okay. And then let's pick a few of them to define that we think are important in our relationship. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we have a love relationship. We, we do. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Like one of one of the uh, very valuable relationships in my life. So I would love to see how God, I'm really interested to see how what resonates. with us. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So I'm going to read them all off. They're in alphabetical order. I'm seeing if I have a pen here. And I think just like mentally okay. flag any of them that you're like, oh, yeah, that's important for us. And okay. then let's define them. Love it. All right. So we've got accountability. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I'm going to just put it out there that this is these are not Anne's definitions of these. We're going to make our own. Um, okay. Accountability active listening, acts of empathy, affirming communication, bestowing, emotional labor, engaged experiences, intentional time, personal growth, platonic touch, problem solving, providing, shared beliefs, solidarity, teamwork, 
thoughtful service, undivided attention, and upskilling. Upscaling or skilling? Upskilling, like learning a new thing together. Okay. Okay, I'm going to tell you mine that stood out. Okay. Acts of empathy, Mm -hmm. personal growth, and shared beliefs are some that really come through strong for me. Okay, so I wrote down acts of empathy. Uh huh. Okay, so we got to define that one. <laughs> Engaged experiences. Uh huh. Personal growth. Uh huh. Teamwork. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Teamwork, I think, is um yeah a given. Oh, that's great. I love those five for us. Okay, so let's let's define. Well, I guess let's just define acts of empathy since that was the first one that stood out for both of us. Yeah, for me, it's really so powerful when someone seems to really understand my perspective. And I also feel like I am able to empathize deeply with people, not all the time, but at times. And I think we've had some real empathy moments. And those to me are the most like heart engaging times for me. Mm -hmm. Like when one person says something and they well up with tears and the other person wells up with tears, like that's where I feel like the heart connection is very strong. Mm -hmm. And that happens to us like almost every time we talk. Yes, (laughs) yes, I know. Um, And chills, chills is another thing that happens with us a lot too, or for me it does. What does it feel like to you when you feel like you're receiving empathy? What does it feel like? Like, where do you feel it in your body? I feel like a um, a swirling kind of galaxy of energy in my chest. That's how I would describe it. How what do you feel? Cool. I think... Well, I will say that acts of empathy for me means, um, I, I think, just ultimately being seen. Yes. Like someone stepping outside of their experience to see, hear, and feel what I'm going through. Yeah. And I absolutely, it's like eye contact. It's just that like energy. I don't know. It's almost like there's an energetic lock that happens yeah. between us. I'll, I'll use us as the example mm-hmm. where I just feel like almost there's like this bubble, this shared bubble then that we go into. And there's this sinking that happens with energy going back and forth. And so you say it's like a swirling galaxy. I feel like it's like a swelling of Mm. feeling maybe that like rises up in my body. And that's maybe where like the tears come from or like when I get the chills. Yes. Um, But it feels very present and time kind of stops. Yes, it's it's totally in the present. And I love that you described the bubble because I feel that bubble as well. It's almost like you, you are in a bubble where time and space is inconsequential and you're just there with the other person. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, life affirming in a way yeah. of like, we are actually here. We're not just playing the game 
to get through survival each day. It's like there's something else. We are two beings hurtling through empty space on a rock yeah. that actually <laughs> each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I know that like acts of empathy can take so many other forms, you know, dropping off food for someone when they're sick or, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's so many different ways to embody that. But when I think of you and I, something I appreciate so much, and I am so glad we're doing this because it's nice <laughs> to give words to it. But there's like two other things that are kind of bolstering that up when I feel like um, I'm receiving empathy from you. And I also really love giving empathy to you. Yes. Like it goes both ways. There's a mutuality in it. Um, but there's active listening that happens. I I think I already said eye contact Mm -hmm. and there's just like a slowing down of the pace where it just feels like you're there for me and can hold the space kind of regardless of whatever else is going on sorry I think that's what the bubble is is the creating a space yeah yeah I love it oh see I feel closer already oh that's so neat yeah okay I'm gonna I commit to keep giving you my teamwork um to continue growing together to uh, actively listen to you and to give and receive. Oh, I love it. With I, that's all I want. That's all I want. All of that. <laughs> give it to me, Sarah. I'll give it right back to you. Oh, so sweet. I love it. it seriously, this podcast is a big part of my like therapeutic growth. I learn so much. I really do. I feel like this is, I hope other people are me too. growing with us and everything. And I would really love to hear input from if you're ever screaming at your phone or wishing that you could in, in uh you know interact with this conversation put your two cents in we're here for all of the perspectives and um and the growth that comes out of it yes please find us fuckyapod.com at fuckyapod on instagram and tiktok and we are also we have an email which is f yeah at gmail. F- F-Yeah F-Yeah pod. pod. Oh God. I think it oh, has dear. a pod in what, it. What is our email? F yeah pod <laughs> at gmail.com. Okay. I love doing this with you, Robin. I love doing it with you, Sarah. Till next time. Bye. Knocking them out of the park. Fuck Yeah podcast is produced and hosted by me, Sarah Tom Chesson, and Robin Jennings. Theme music is produced and performed by she, her, sir. You can find out more about what we're up to at fuckyeahpod.com or reach out directly at fyeahpod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the pod, give us a hand. Rate review, subscribe, wherever you listen, and make sure to share it with a few friends. Thanks so much for tuning in.